We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Come here together, over there, Andy Warhol. We have this chance to combine music and art and films all together. We're sponsoring a new band, it's called The Velvet Underground. And me, I'm in a rock and roll band. Demp is my first time in New York and I was appalled. This place is filthy. <laughs> Cinema, money, parties. It was outrageous. People came because the cameras were running. They thought they could become famous. At the center of it is the exploding art world. It opened your eyes to a lot of possibilities. We started getting a following, but a lot of radio stations wouldn't play our stuff. Sound, not only was it new, but it was radically different. We were studying natural harmonics. Shiny, shiny. Lowe's music was very heavy. Everything he does in that craggly voice of his resonated. That weirdness, it shouldn't have existed in this space. His music sounded like nothing else. And all of a sudden, it would stop like that, and the audience would be dead silent. The Velvet Underground had hypnotized them. Luke always was very clear that there's no difference between being a writer of the book and a writer of lyrics. The artist is not with society. He's different. I was interested in communicating to people who were on the outside. They were going to blaze a trail. Eventually, they did. Good evening. We're your local Velvet Underground. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Ed Lockman. He is the DP behind many of your favorite films, has been working in the industry for a while. I talked to him about a lot of his older films, as well as one of his latest, which is the documentary The Velvet Underground, which was directed by Todd Haynes. I hope you enjoy the interview. I noticed that you worked with a lot of 
foreign directors. And I was curious, do you know how to speak German? Ambitiondeutsch, yeah. Okay. You know, the 70s, the German new wave was coming to be. They were kind of reuniting in the world culturally. And I was always in film school interested in European cinema. Thesis Revolution, uh, Bertolucci's uh, third film. And I met Werner Herzog in Berlin, actually, in his first film, Signs of Life. And I just kind of got taken up with the Germans. You know, I worked with Werner on La Soufriere, and then in America, Stroschek. And then from there, I worked with Volker Schlundorf, Gathering of Old Men. And then I worked with Viv Vendors on American Friend with Robbie Muller, just the New York scenes, then Lightning Over Water. So I became this oddity of this American, the American friend, so to speak. And, and I've always kept my foot in Europe. I'm more interested in the storytelling and how many lights, how big my crew is, you know. How did uh, Ken Park come about? Larry Clark and Robert Frank were probably the, the most influential photographers for me when I was growing up and I decided I was interested in images. And I met Larry at a art fair in Graz, Austria. And at this dinner, it was just Larry and I and all these people and everyone speaking German. And I said to Larry at the time, you know, your books, Teenage Lust and Tulsa, are like films. Have you ever thought about making a film? And he said, hey, man, I always wanted to make a film. So I said, oh, it's easy. What, what are you into? And he said, I'm into skaters. I said, well, I was a skater when I was young. So I said, you don't be interesting, because I was interested in Larry Clark. Did your, your images are like visual diaries. Did you keep any diaries when you were growing up? And he said, I did. I said, would you let me see them? So I said, why don't we take the stories out of your diaries and we'll institute that in some skaters and we'll use the form of the skate park to tell the story. I had seen a film by Stephen Freer's Bloody Kids, where he tells a story of different characters that all become one story. So I had this idea conceptually that that's the way you could tell a story. So then Larry and I were in our fifties at that time and we, neither of us are writers. So we both said, we got to find someone younger than us to like take the stories out of the diary and kind of update these stories kind of to today. And he said, well, I met this kid in Washington Square Park, Harmony Corin, and he says he can write. Why don't we look at what he's written? And then lo and behold, it was like really weird. Harmony was a PA production assistant on a film I had done with light sleeper, Paul Schrader's film. So I kind of knew him, but didn't really remember him. And so then the three of us came together and made this film. And then they went off and did kids. He came to me and said, oh, Gus Van Sant has this project. He wants me to direct. I said, That's great. Why don't you go off and make kids? And then you'll get your chops, you know, with harmony. And so they went off and he had success with that. And then we finally got it together and got money out of Europe to do Ken Park together. That was the evolution of that. You have worked with, well, so many 
amazing directors, but working with Soderbergh, I imagine has to be kind of a, a different ball of wax because he always seems to be out there on the edge though. One of my favorite movies of his is a little bit more traditional, which is the limey. Can you tell me what it was like shooting that? At the time it was out there for people, you know, that it was more experimental in the sense for a Hollywood film, very small crew. He never wanted to put the camera on a crane or a dolly. That was actually, if I thought about it, it's actually the way we shoot digital films now. You know, there was a, a looseness to it. I had just finished Virgin Suicide and I got a call up in Canada, actually. And I, I had met Stephen at Sundance. We were on a jury together. And I came to L.A. and he offered me the film. You know, the wonderful thing about Stephen is he experiments within the Hollywood context. I mean, now he shoots films with an iPhone, you know. Now he's his own cameraman, which is great. You know, but I'm just saying it was just it was just this fluidity of of working with with Stephen and how aware he was of how to play with the form. And then the editing, you know, I he told me. We would be in scenes and he would ask the actors, just run the lines that we ran the other day in this scene. I didn't know that he was going to then use the dialogues the way he did over scenes. That it was so interesting because it, it allows the audience to enter the interior world of the characters different way than, let's say, voiceover. Okay, so he already had that in mind. What that idea, he was said, I kind of ex- wanted to do something like that with, I think, with Out of the Past, but I, I didn't get to do it. It was kind of nebulous of how he was going to do it, but then in the editing, he found a way to do it. Was Far From Heaven, was that the first time that you and Todd Haynes worked together? Yes. yes. How's that relationship been and evolved over the years? We keep working together, you know, and, and and each film is its own thematic, its own stylistic approach. And and Todd is so interesting of how, you know, he, he, he researches things from the culture of the time, music, the, the visual reference, it could be fashion, it could be the art world. It's not just the cinematic language of the time. So he... He And then the other thing that he does that I think makes it different is he tries to understand the approach of how they told the story, you know, like how they use the camera, how they use the editing. And he instills that in the storytelling that I think gives it an authenticity to, to it. I, he said something interesting in a Q&A the other day at, in in, I'm in New York at the New York Film Festival. Somebody asked him, because this is his first foray in a documentary form versus the narrative form. And the reference they made that was interesting was, in the narrative form, he always finds a certain authenticity to the world that's very specific and I think helps the viewer believe the story he's telling. Where in this documentary form, especially in the Velvet Underground, he didn't have a lot of footage of them document. But what he did have was the culture around them in images, the experimental filmmakers, the Jonas Mikas, 
you know, the founder of the film collective of the time in New York that was so influential to Andy Warhol and the art movement of the time. And by situating them in the world of the experimental filmmaking and the pop art of the time and New York City of the time, you start to understand who the Velvet Underground was. And so it's kind of like he fictionalizes, well, not fictionalizes, maybe the wrong words, but he creates the gestalt, the, the, the atmosphere of the world that now you begin to feel like you're part of understanding why the Velvet Underground was so important. Like you said, maybe they sold 5,000 records, but they created 5,000 new groups. Those 5,000 records created new sensibility of What was your experience like shooting the Velvet Underground? Well, the visual reference, I'm a part of it, you know, because it's really, for me, it's a tour de force in the editing and the stylistic approach you use. But I did know that we were going to use multiple imagery. So the two sources, the references were Andy Warhol's screen test, where he would set up his Bolex, black and white, 16 millimeter, and just like a portrait, have people face his camera. So that was one light source. That was an element. The other was the silk screen printing that Andy Warhol did, that he was referencing the media stars, you know, like Marilyn Monroe, the movie stars, Jacqueline Onassis, Debbie Harry, where there was this fat, flat palette of different colors with the, almost a pencil drawing or outline of their faces. And so we use those color palette of the interviews. We're not only in the background, but also I lit their faces with a gel. So the combination of those two things I felt could situate that you felt we were doing it in that time period. You talked about that you already knew you were going to do the multi-images thing. I found it very interesting how the a lot of the interviews were done with that kind of like two-third, one-third. Was that already in the works? That was the other aspect. I, because I knew that it would be multiple images, I framed it in different ways, putting the person on the right or the left, knowing that there would be part of the frame be cut off. So because of the multiple imagery in the frame. So there were multiple images in the frame, not just their face, that I used off composition framing. Were you in that world in the 60s when uh, that was going on? I'm old enough. I had been to the factory. I knew Nico. I, I, I had done, interesting enough, I had done in the 90s, which was later, I did a concert film with Lou Reed and John Cale that we played at Tallywright and at the New York Film Festival called Songs for Drella, an homage to Andy Warhol. But 17 years previous, in 73, I did the Berlin promo for Lou Reed. And I've always looked for that over the years, never found it. And I found it on a reel during in my loft, where I am now, in one of the boxes. It was a print, but I retransferred it. And uh, the funny story of that was 
I didn't really know Lou Reed back then. I knew of him, but didn't really know him. And he came up to me when I was setting up the camera and he kicked my tripod and said, do it like Andy. And in a panic and shock, I held on to the camera. And then he walked back to the microphone when I set up the camera. So I didn't really understand what he was saying. So when we did songs for Drella, I said, Lou, you'll never remember this. But when I did the promo for Berlin, you came up and kicked my camera and told me, do it like Andy. And he looked at me and smiled and said, I don't remember much from back then. What were some of your biggest challenges making the Velvet Underground? Being available, because we shot over different time periods. We never knew when we would get somebody. And some of the interviews I didn't do because I wasn't around. So it was really my availability. And we shot them in Super 8 and tried to use different elements. Did you shoot a lot during the pandemic? We did shoot some of them during the pandemic. A lot of them we shot before. Okay, so this has been in the works for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. After we had finished Dark Waters, Todd, the last film I did with Todd, he started this project. Do you typically work on multiple things at once or just one project at a time? I generally, you know, kind of very methodic. I, I do one and then I like to see it through. Of course, editing takes a while. And then, you know, when when I get involved to do the color correction, you know, how the film's going to look at the end. And now I'm older, so I don't want to work anymore anyway. But I do every once in a while for top. Well, Mr. Lachman, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific. Great. Thanks. 